0: And teaching is brought to you by calvary bible church in burbank california we trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your christian faith and walk. for more information about calvary bible church see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840 bless the lord to bless the time we have together now in his word Father, we do thank you for many reformers. Uh, thank you for Josiah, how you used him as one man in an incredible way, even as a young man, to bring about reformation among his people. And Thank you, Lord, for those you have raised up through history. I pray, God, that you would use us in such a way, that, Lord, you would grant us great faith and trust in you and love for your son and, Lord, an understanding and love for your word so that we may, Lord, be instruments in your hands to bring out reformation in our time. Lord, we thank you for privilege now that we have to go before your word. We just want to continue to pray for the many, Lord, who are sick or ailing. I want to continue to pray for Kathy, Lord, whose cancer has come back. And just ask you would comfort her. Pray for Tom Larder. Just uh, you would bring him back to good health. Also for Bill Mitchell, Lord, and these... Last hours, I pray that you would uh, give him comfort. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of love and grace and you are holy and just. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, <clears throat> I wanted to make up a little for um, Brock's rather gross introduction last week. I, I listened to his message uh, this week, and, uh, you know, I mean, eating, he talked talk about eating spiders, uh, drinking eyeball juice from. Cows, uh, And I heard he showed pictures. All right. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry about that. I'd like to think myself a little more dignified. uh, So I thought we'd talk this morning about chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) I saw a few out front. Um, You know, I love chocolate chip cookies. Uh, My daughter, Carissa, makes a a killer chocolate chip cookie. Um, If you ever want some, come on over and then she'll make some. Then I can have some too, but... And I remember one of my first visits to Los Angeles, actually, my mother had bought some chocolate chip cookies from a a local um, uh, store that cookie store that had actually recently opened. And I still remember those. That was like back in the late 70s, having those cookies. And it turns out that store was owned by a man who previously had been a talent agent. In fact, a talent agent who had signed Simon and Garfunkel, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Yeah, we're going back a few years here. One of the methods is interesting that he would use in order to attract clients or uh, in order to uh, get people to to consider him was to make them his chocolate chip cookies, a recipe his aunt had shown him when he was a boy. And so, after a, a number of years, over the years, a number of people had uh, tasted these cookies and encouraged them to say, "You should open your own store. These things are incredible." And so, eventually, with the financial backing from artists such as Helen Reddy and Marvin Gaye, he opened up his first store on Sunset Boulevard. turns out that was the store my mom had bought those cookies from. The man's name was Wally Amos. His cookies were Famous Amos. Today, Famous Amos, unfortunately, it's owned by the Kellogg Company. The cookies aren't as good as the ones I remember, but every so often when we're in the grocery store, I still try to sneak a bag into the cart without my wife looking... But you probably guessed uh, the name of our next prophet that we're going to be looking at is, yes, well, you're so quick, yes. Uh, what's that? It's on the sign. Oh. Who drew that? That's really actually a good graphic there, Richard. Oh, who did it? You... Oh, you did That's... Very nice, Adam. Um, all right, well, you got the clue. Yeah, Amos, there is a famous Amos in the Bible. And we're going to look at his prophecy. And actually, it's really interesting if you compare these two men. They both had unusual backgrounds to where they ended up. Uh, famous Amos, the cookie maker, uh, he started in the Air Force. And then he ended up in the mailroom. And going from the mailroom, he became a talent agent. And then from there, he started his own business. And Amos as well, the prophet, took an unexpected path to his role as God's messenger. So if you're not there yet, please turn to Amos, the book of Amos, and we're going to look this morning at and talk about and learn about the man, about his time where he lived and also his message and then its relevance to us today. Because, you know, as we go through the the prophets, particularly the twelve, the minor prophets, a lot of times it can look just like, you know, it's another book about judgment, another book about judgment, lots of people's names in there. I don't really know much about places and things like that. And we can tend to to dismiss it or not necessarily see the relevance that it has for us Today, But every one of these we'll find has great relevance, particularly the book of Amos and our own country. Well, let's begin with the man Amos. We're going to look at verse one first, where he describes a little bit about his background. He says, "...the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, when he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake." Alright, let's stop there a minute. Now the last half of the verse here gives us an indication, a very specific indication of the time which Amos prophesied. Notice he mentions two kings here: King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel. And again, sometimes when we see names like this, we just don't maybe maybe we don't know much about them, so we move on to see what's going to be happen next. But actually, understanding these names and knowing about them gives us a clue and a significant key to know what was happening in amos's day and it's important to know that because it will inform us and help us to understand his message and amos here mentions two kings now why does he do that why two kings anybody know why is there two kings here from judah and israel divided kingdom that's right the kingdom of israel actually the nation of israel back right after king solomon had died had split They rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and actually the ten northern tribes became what was referred to as Israel in Kings and Chronicles. And the southern tribe, Judah, along with Benjamin and the Levites, became known as the nation of Judah in the south. And this split, again, had taken place probably about 170 years before the time of Amos. A little picture here, if I can get to it. Uh, this, by the way, just shows the, the various kings. I want you to have them all memorized by the end of our session together this morning. Actually, I just highlighted uh, these three because Uzziah and Jeroboam, and here's Amos, and notice there's a window. He only mentions these two kings. He doesn't talk about their fathers or their sons because Amos prophesied during the time when only those two kings were on the throne. And so that narrows it down to a window of about 15 years when, Uzziah, when um, Amos prophesied he mentions too this earthquake. He says that he prophesied two years before an earthquake which took place in the land. Now that doesn't help us a whole lot because there isn't any information given in Kings or Chronicles about an earthquake, but it must have been a significant one because over 200 years later, the prophet Zechariah mentioned in his book in Zechariah chapter 14 about this very earthquake. And it's interesting that some excavations in Hazor, which is a city in northern Galilee, has discovered uh, the remains of some places which indicate a a significant earthquake that took place. And they dated it around the time between 765 and 760 B.C., which is right in the window when Amos prophesied. And so Amos talks about, uh, or we learn Amos existed, uh, prophesied, uh, proclaimed God's message in this time when these two kings were in power. If we were to go back and look through 2 Kings 14 and also 2 Chronicles 26, we would find that the times were good in those days in Judah and Israel. In fact, King Uzziah had built up Judah's military. It had come from a very uh, small military. He was able to build it up and expand his territory into Philistia on the west coast. Uh, We learn in those chapters as well that King Jeroboam also expanded his borders further north. And if you remember in our study of Jonah, Jonah was actually the prophet who came to King Jeroboam and prophesied and told him, God is going to enlarge your borders. He's going to expand your kingdom. In addition to gaining more territory, we also learn from uh, looking at these other Old Testament passages that Israel was in great prosperity in that day. In fact, a little bit later in Amos 3.15, he describes how they owned large houses, how people had much ivory within their homes. And in fact, they actually, some people had summer and winter homes. It wasn't just an American phenomenon. It actually took place back in Israel. My summer home is actually a sleeping bag, but they had actual nice... Houses that they had lived in. The prophet Hosea, who also lived in that time period, described in Hosea chapter 12 how there was great wealth in the nation of Israel. So times were good. God appeared to be blessing the people. And in the midst of this security, in the midst of uh, this prosperity, and even, we'll learn later, of a great religious activity that was happening in the day, in the midst of all that, God sends a prophet, the prophet Amos to proclaim a message. Who is this guy Amos? What do we know about him? We're given a a little bit in that very first verse. There's one line that Amos gives us a kind of a brief self-bio and he describes himself how? As a sheep herder from Tekoa, right? A sheep herder from Tekoa. Somewhat unique background for a prophet. That word sheep herder in Amos, it actually is not the common word that is used for a shepherd, but it is a a word that refers to someone who takes care not only of sheep, but also of cattle. It's kind of more of a general idea of, of raising livestock. And it also could incorporate this idea of managing others who were herdsmen. In fact, let's look at Amos 7 for a minute. We're going to get a little more detail about him from there. Amos chapter 7. We'll look in this passage in a few weeks. But there's one part of it that I wanted us to see, and that is a description that gives further indication, information about Amos and where he came from his background. At this point in the book, Amos is describing a situation where his message wasn't too well received by those in Israel. In fact, uh, Amaziah, who was uh, the high priest, uh, the main religious guy in the northern nation of Israel uh, here in Bethel, which was the capital of the religious, uh, was the religious center of Israel, here Amaziah is describing his um, disdain for Amos. Look in verse 12 of chapter 7. Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. See, Amos had been talking about Israel was going to be going into exile. People don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear God isn't happy with them. And so Amaziah here says, go away, go back home, go make your living where you came from. Then Amos replies in verse 14 to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet. Nor am I a son of a prophet, for I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Again, we see Amaziah doesn't like Amos' message of judgment. He tells him to go back home, make his money there. That that term eating bread is talking about, go make your living somewhere else. And and Amos gives that famous reply, I'm not a prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet. Now, when he said that, when he said, I'm not a prophet, he meant, he didn't mean he wasn't a prophet now, because that would contradict the very first verse, which says he was sent by God with a message. But what he was saying was, my normal vocation is not as a prophet. That is not how God provides for me where I come from. And then he gives a statement, neither am I a son of a prophet. And by that, he wasn't saying that his dad wasn't a prophet. What he was saying there was that he wasn't part of the guild. Remember the sons of the prophets described in Kings and Chronicles? It was a a school for prophet training that was started by Samuel and then carried on in the days of Elijah and Elisha. All he's saying here is that that he wasn't one that was part of that. He's saying, you know, I I don't make my living doing this. I'm a herdsman. I raise cattle. I raise sheep. In fact, that's what I was doing before I came up here. Minding my own business, watching a flock of sheep and my responsibility. And then the Lord took me. He doesn't even say called. He says, the Lord took me. I was compelled. And God said, go and prophesy to Israel. And notice in Amos 1.1, did you catch where this herdsman was from? What was the name of the place he was from? A place called Tekoa. Now, I've got a map here. The purple is the region of Judah in the days of Amos. The green region is Israel along with the orange. Now, do you know, where is Tekoa? Is it in the purple or the green? In the purple. That's right. Where is Israel? Israel's the green, right? So God sent somebody who wasn't from Israel to Israel. In fact, he was from the nation of Judah. So here's old Amos. He's got no formal training. He did not go to seminary. He was not a Levite serving in the temple. This was a guy raising livestock and perhaps managing a few farmhands as well. And God says, Amos, I've got a job for you. Again, this is no skilled preacher, yet God would make him one. This was no experienced, seasoned minister, yet God would use him. This wasn't a, a prophet uh, uh, by, by experience as well, but God would entrust this man with his word. You know, Amos probably would not have scored well on a pastoral search committee, but he did on God's assessment. And so God, you know, He rarely takes the obvious route, does He? He rarely does that. He often uses those who many would see as unqualified to do His work. And rather than send somebody like an Elijah or an Elisha or a Samuel or even a Nathan, God sends this rugged rancher from Israel, or from Judah, excuse me, Israel's lesser neighbor, And this is how God likes to work, doesn't he? Remember 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about this. Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no one may boast before God. I love this. God calls this man Amos. Amos. And God equips him. And God uses him. And he does that in the end. Why? Why does God do that? Who receives the praise for that? Who receives the attention for that in the end? It's God, isn't it? He's the one that receives glory. No one can say, you know, I did it because of my great skills and abilities. And look how God used me. Or look how I, my, my skills and what they did. I'm so encouraged that God called this herdsman from Judah because if God can use Amos, he can use me. If God can equip Amos for this very challenging task that was before him, God can equip me. And he can do the same for you. And he will. Don't think you're no use to God. You know, Amos was no Moses. Moses was no Moses until God's grace got a hold of him, right? Whatever calling you have, whether it is to be a teacher or to run a business or to be a, a mother or clean floors. Whatever your calling is, God will choose the weak things of the world for His work. And He will use even those areas that are hard for you as a means to serve Him. And this doesn't mean we can be slack. This doesn't mean that uh, it's some, you know we can just kind of lay around and, and God's going to do His thing. No, we still need to be diligent. For one thing, Amos will show us that though he was a worker in the field, he knew the word of God. We will see as we go through his book that though he had no formal training, he was a man of the book. And God will use anyone. But that person must be faithful. That person must be diligent. That person must love his word. And so we have Amos. Amos shows us not only his diligence and faithfulness, but he also shows us he's an example of courage. And trust in the Lord. Because think about the task he was given here. Think about this for a moment. Not only was he a prophet without any formal training. Not only was he sent to Israel. A place not known for being very accepting of prophets most of the time. But he was not even from Israel. He was a southerner. From Judah. And though Judah and Israel were not in conflict in Amos's day. There has been much conflict between these two nations in their history. In fact... Under the reigns of their fathers, of the father Uzziah and Jeroboam, they were in a war together against one another. There was much hostility between these two. In fact, Jeroboam's father had called Judah a meager thorn bush and said Israel was like a great cedar tree. So I want you to just think a minute. Put yourself in Amos's shoes. Think about his situation. Imagine, imagine people living in the north just after the American Civil War, and some southern plantation manager comes into town and tells them that everybody there is is in sin, that God was going to judge him, that he wasn't happy. How well do you think that southerner would be received? Yeah, exactly, exactly. We see that from Amaziah in the text we read. This was the great challenge that Amos faced, but he obeyed God with boldness. Unlike Jonah, Amos got up and he went immediately. So when God calls you to serve, look at Amos' example. No matter how difficult, no matter how intimidating or frightening or overwhelming the task may seem to be, step out in courageous faith and do it. For we are like Amos. You realize we all have a message to proclaim, don't we? A message of warning. It's a message that many don't want to hear, but they need to hear. That tells us a little bit just from his own example of how we can pursue to be those who are faithful to God and courageous and speak for him like this prophet Amos. Well, that's a little bit about the man Amos. Let's move on to his message. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. There we're given a summary of what God wanted to say through this man. Verse 2, and he said, Yahweh, the Lord, roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters his voice. The shepherd's shepherd's pasture grounds mourn. And the summit of Carmel dries up. Okay, stop there a minute. Here we see the theme. What is the theme of this book? God's declaring that he's going to bring judgment, right? Judgment. He's described here as a, like a lion roaring from, from Zion, that is Jerusalem. And, and then he declares this general statement of, of a judgment that's symbolized by drought. He describes the pasture lands. Those were the rich lands that were to the south, that they would be crying out and mourning because they had no rain to be nourished by. And then this Mount Carmel was in the top northeast of Israel. It was also a very fertile and rich area for agriculture. And it says there that the land will also be parched. And so despite the, the prosperity, despite the security, despite the religious activity that was going on in Israel, God says things aren't well, actually, that he is not pleased. And so he sends a warning and he sends it through this unlikely prophet. And before we see the, look at the m- message in more detail here, again, we need to understand that this prophecy isn't... We, a lot of times, again, we lump them all together. So they're just saying the same thing over and over and over. But each book of the Bible, each prophet here that speaks, though the message may sound similar, there is a different theme and emphasis. For example, back in Obadiah, The key emphasis was on God's vindication of himself and his people. Or when we looked at Joel, the emphasis there was on God's desire for true repentance and restoration. Or we just looked at Jonah. What was the main thrust of Jonah? Talked about God's compassion and our need to express it to others. And so here in Amos, what we're going to see is a real emphasis on the justice and the righteousness of God. That is his central message. For we see in his book, especially in this first chapter, God's justice prompts him to respond to our injustice. His righteousness prompts him to respond to our unrighteousness. And as Amos begins, we find that the injustice that God is going to speak against is not Israel in the beginning here, but actually the nations surrounding Israel. So let's pick it up in Amos chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to read what he has to say to those nations. Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with the implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it will consume the citadels of ben I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avin and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. So the people of Aram will go exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will revoke not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it will consume her citadels. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Taman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabah, and it will consume her citadels. Amid roar cries in the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will revoke, not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kerioth and Moab will die amid tumult with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. Okay, well, let's move on to chapter 2, <clears throat> chapter 3 now. Um, I mean, we look at this and we see, look at, there's all these places that are mentioned, right? A few names, but lots of places that some may be familiar to you, but many may not be. Again, uh, who are who are these places? Where are they? What is their relevance to this book of Amos? What is the Lord judging them for? How do these oracles relate to what Amos wants to say? And why does he bring up these nations first when his prophecy is specifically to Israel. If he was sent to Israel to speak and prophesy against them, why talk about these nations? Well, answer that, we first need to get a feel for where these nations are located, where these places are. I've got a slide here that will depict a little bit. This is actually uh, more like about 70 years before Amos, but I picked this uh, picture because it, it does a good job of highlighting the various regions. And if you notice... Here, that one thing that all of these nations have in common that he mentions here in chapter 1 is all of them touch the borders of Israel or Judah. Only the nations that are the direct neighbors of Israel and Judah are mentioned here. He doesn't mention uh, the Arabians. He doesn't talk about Egypt. He doesn't talk about um, uh, any place else, Assyria. Only these nations which are directly touching the borders of Israel and Judah or Judah the first one he mentions is, he says, Damascus, which is the chief city in the kingdom of Aram. So it simply represents the nation of Aram. Then he says Gaza. Gaza was the chief city over here along the west coast in the region of the Philistines. And then he talks about after that Tyre, also on the coast, but up north of Israel. Tyre represents the, the kingdom of Phoenicia. Then comes Edom, located south of Judah. It's on the very bottom the big yellow one, and then he mentions Ammon and then Moab. Again, what's the relevance of these nations in particular? Again, they are those that are directly connected and bordering Israel and Judah. But notice too, as we look at this list, he first talks about, he doesn't kind of go around like we think he might or something like that. He first starts with Damascus and then Philistia and then Phoenicia and then these three here. Why does he do it in that order? Well, one thing is, if you think about it, Uh, these three nations actually share a kinship with Israel and Judah. These three do not. If you remember Edom. Edom was a nation that came from where? Where did Edom descend from? If you remember back to Obadiah days here. Esau, right? Esau is... He's Jacob's brother, right? So Edom and Israel actually have a direct connection going all the way back to Jacob and Esau. Ammon and Moab, they are the children of Lot the nephew of Abraham. And so the three nations he first mentioned are the least connected to Israel in that way. The next three are actually relatives. They are Israel's kin. So he describes them this way. And there's another thing too. I noticed that if you look at the pattern here, he first mentions Damascus, right? And then he mentions Gaza. Then he talks about Tyre. And then he goes down to Ammon. And I thought about this for a minute. If you connect those places together, notice what we have here. We have an X. And I thought about this. What could be significant about this? And I thought, you know what? God's telling us something. There's something very important right there in that location. And I thought, what could be more important than the Ark of the Covenant? We you get what's going on? I think God's telling us where the Ark is here. <laughs> what? You don't think so? I was thinking maybe we could get a missions trip going over there. There's actually a town there, Beth Sean. Uh, we could go and check it out. I think that... Actually, I have no idea why there's an X here, but I don't know if it's significant or not. If it's a pattern that God wanted us to see or not, I'll have to do a little more study, I guess, on that. But there is a pattern here in chapter 1 that we have regarding these nations, and that is every single oracle that he gives here has the exact same format to them, the exact same kinds of statements that he makes. There's a repeated cycle that he gives. Every single one of them he begins with the statement, Thus says the Lord, telling Amos that that, telling us that Amos is not speaking his own opinion, but that he is declaring what God, the sovereign God of all the nations, has told him to say. And following that in every single oracle we see this phrase for three transgressions and for four Transgression here is a, a legal term. It's a synonym for sin, but it, it describes specifically uh, uh, those uh, offenses or crimes, especially against God. This phrase here, for three and for four, it's a common idiom that's used in the Old Testament. And actually, we found it in other ancient Near Eastern writings. But uh, Proverbs 30, 18 is an example. It says, there are three things too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. Or Proverbs six sixteen, where he says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And in some cases, when we see this idiom, we'll often see a list of things given after the idiom. For example, in Proverbs six sixteen, the seven things the Lord hates, we see a list of seven things given right after that. But sometimes when this expression is used, there is no list given. It's just a general way to say that there are it's an indefinite number. But there are uh, many things being described here. But here in Amos, it's kind of interesting. Amos does give a a list. But in his list, none of the nations that he addresses actually, does he say three or four, actually the number three or four transgressions. Uh, Edom, maybe there's four, but everyone else is one or two. And so the question is, why why would he use this term for three or four and then actually have a list, but have that list not correspond to the number he gave? You, You tracking with me? Why would he do that? We'll come next week. We'll talk more about that. It's actually very important to what he's going to get to when he talks to Israel. But there is one thing that I want us to glean from this phrase here. And that is that uh, Amos is emphasizing the fact that for three or for four, he's saying there are many transgressions here that have been committed. And typically he may only give one or two, but they are representative of the many that each nation has committed. That's why God says next in each oracle, He says, I will not revoke it, meaning I will not change my decision and how I'm going to justly respond to your sin. And then after that, declaring the transgression, God repeats in every case, in every oracle, He says, I will send fire. Fire that will consume the citadels. A citadel is just a, a term that means a, a fortified house, a, a fortress, usually for the king or key members of that society. They would have these strongly defended places where they were living. The point being that God's saying, even e- you know, even the strongholds of your kings will not be safe. That means nowhere is safe from my judgment. And so we see here each or- oracle has the same pattern for every nation. The only difference being the specific transgression that God identifies within that nation. And then some of the details of how he sends the judgment is also a little different. But let's look at each of these transgressions briefly. I want, us to see, I want you to see if you can find a pattern or a connection between the specific sins that he mentions. First oracle is addressed to Damascus, which again isn't just referring only to the city in Aram, but is representative of the entire nation of Aram. And no, here he only gives one transgression that they threshed uh, Gilead with implements of sharp iron. That doesn't mean that that's the only sin that Aram committed. Again, for three or for four, right? Begins this. And Aram's transgression was a significant one. It was a serious one. Again, he says that they threshed Gilead with sharp iron. Now, Gilead, it's important to realize, is the region of eastern Israel on the east side of the Jordan. And so any nation that was coming in from the east would attack first in Gilead. And he says here that the Arameans had come through Gilead and had threshed them with this this, uh, implements of iron. Now, one thing uh, that's important to understand, the Arameans had been in great hostility towards Israel for the past hundred years. In fact, under the kings Hazael and his son Ben-Hadad, they had afflicted the Israelites numerous times. It's interesting, uh, Elisha actually met met Hazael before Hazael became king. And it says in 2 Kings 8 that as he met him, he began to weep. Hazael said, why are you weeping, Elisha? And Elisha said, God has shown me what you're going to do to my people. And he just then went on to describe some of the horrific things that he would do, including the brutal murder of women and children. And those weren't the terrible acts that Amos notes here, but he does note that Gilead was threshed with sharp iron. Now what is threshing? What's that term refer to? When we say threshing, what are we talking about? Right? You think you picture cattle or something walking around in a in a, a region where there's grain, right, and they're stomping out the grain so that the kernels will be separated from the husks? And actually over time they had developed a more efficient method where they would uh, use this uh, large heavy wooden board and they would embed stone or flint underneath the board and that proved to be more efficient in threshing the grain. And then not long after that they found that iron prongs were actually the best to use because they were the most durable and lasted the longest amount of time. And they were these sharp iron prongs that they would embed within the bottom of this wood. And some say here that when he says threshed Gilead, that it's just a, a figurative expression to say how Aram had defeated Gilead thoroughly. But notice he doesn't just say thresh. He says thresh with iron, sharp iron. I think what he's telling us here, this is literal. In fact, every other transgression mentioned by the other nations was literal. So too is this one. Aram had the prisoners of war line up and lay on the ground, and then they would have these soldiers uh, take the, the wood with the prongs of iron and run it over the bodies of these living men. Some scholars think that they also had civilians go and lay on the ground as well and torture them in this way. A horrific act. And so God declares judgment on these people, he says he's going to break through their most protected city of Damascus, and that he's going to uh, bring judgment to the valley of Avon, which was in the east, and the Beth Eden, which was in the west. He's saying the whole nation will be judged, and in fact, that's what happens later under the Assyrians. In about thirty years, Second Kings sixteen, excuse me, tells us that the Assyrians conquered Aram. And following Aram, we see in verses six through eight that Yahweh then addresses Gaza. Again, being the chief city of the region of Philistia. And we know the Philistines, right? They go way back in Israel's history. They didn't get along too well, did they? In fact, we, they go back all the way to the time of Joshua. And we learn in verse 6 that the transgression against them is that they exiled literally an entire exile to Edom. Meaning they, they deported a whole population to Edom. And again, it was common practice in the ancient Near East that when a nation had conquered another nation in war, that some of the soldiers who had been captured or some of the leaders of the conquered nation will be taking, taken to the, the conquering nation and used in various services there. Daniel is an example, right? When Jerusalem was ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar, he was taken among others to go serve in the king's palace. But here it's not saying that event at all. It's saying the Philistines were actually raiding other lands and taking entire cities or perhaps even regions of men, women and children and taking them to Edom and taking them as exiles, meaning they were being taken as slaves. Edom was known in that day for using slaves for their dangerous mining operations. And because of the dangers, many of the slaves would died or were injured. And so they would need a constant supply Exodus twenty one sixteen 16 expressly forbade the Israelites from kidnapping someone in order to sell them as a slave. In fact, God said it would be a capital punishment for that. But these Philistines, they saw vulnerable people simply as a means to be uh, exploited and profited from. And it doesn't say here who the Philistines were doing this to, but who do you think would be the most likely candidate? Right? Who was their neighbors? Israel and Judah, nations that they did not get along with. And so, because of this, God declares judgment upon the city-states of Philistia. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, those are the chief cities within the land. And about 150 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had completely destroyed them. Following the Philistines, the next oracle is given against Tyre in verses 9 through 10. Again, Tyre is up in the north on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, They were mostly a seafaring people. In fact, their economy was based upon import and export of goods, primarily from the sea. And notice their transgression. It's almost the same as what was said against the Philistines, that they too delivered up an entire population to eat them. So it seems like there was a, basically a slavery trafficking between these three nations that was happening in this day. And notice that he says not only were they doing that, but that they had, did it with those whom they had a covenant of brotherhood. I think that's an expression, he's not talking about family specifically there, but that was an expression that was used in the ancient Near Eastern times for nations who had a treaty with one another. They actually would call themselves brothers. So he's describing here that Tyre had not only committed the heinous act of kidnapping people and then selling them into slavery, but they were doing it with those who trusted them, those who they had a, a treaty with, a covenant with. And just like the Philistines, the text doesn't say who Tyre was taking, but Israel is the most likely candidate. Because about 70 years earlier, in Joel chapter 3, God had condemned the regions of Phoenicia and Philistia for selling the sons of Judah into slavery. And you remember, Tyre actually did have several covenants with Israel, did they not? Remember David? King David had one with the king of Tyre. And also his son Solomon continued that covenant. And even more than that, uh, Jezebel... Remember of Jezebel and Ahab fame? She was the daughter of the king of Phoenicia. And she married King Ahab, king of Israel. So they were also connected not only by the previous covenants, but also by marriage. And yet Tyre broke that covenant, betrayed that relationship all for money. Reminds me of a few others in history, doesn't it? Think of Joseph's brothers, what they did to Joseph. I think of the greatest betrayer in history, Judas, what he did to Jesus, selling out those close to them for money. And so God declares judgment on Tyre, a judgment that eventually came to pass under Alexander the Great. And in verse 11, God then directs his attention to Edom. Stay with me here. I know it's tough going through a list, but it's important at the end to see how all these connect. We talked about Edom a while back when we studied Obadiah. And if you remember, then Edom was condemned, right? It was condemned for taking advantage of the people of Judah when the Philistines and the Arabians had come in and ransacked Jerusalem and left it vulnerable and destitute. Then the Edomites came in and they took stuff from there too. And actually people that were trying to escape, the Edomites captured and delivered over to the enemy. God was unhappy about that. Remember, Edom came from Jacob's brother, Esau. So while Phoenicia was related to Israel by marriage, Edom was related by blood. In fact, God told the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 23, 7, He said, Don't detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. But Edom had been hostile with Israel all through their history. And here it says in verse 11 that he pursued his brother with the sword. Well, what does that mean? He wasn't handing it to to him so he could borrow it, right? He was using it to murder. So the Edomites, this is describing a time when they had actually murdered those from Israel. So here God declares judgment upon them for their murderous ways. And again, notice it says here that their murderous ways came from a continually angry and vengeful heart, one full of fury, which is just how they're described in Psalm 83, how Edom had desired to wipe Israel out and to see her remembered no more. So God says... They will be judged. Those cities he mentions here, Taman and Basra, again, they were chief cities in the region of Edom. He's indicating that the whole kingdom would be destroyed. That's exactly what happened later under the Babylonians. Verse 13, we come to Ammon. Again, Ammon was related also by blood to Israel. For they uh, the Ammonites came from, descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew, But despite that connection, they had been a thorn in Israel's side all through their history. All the way back to the time of Judges. We read about the Ammonites and the various invasions that they inflicted upon Israel and the, the torturous things that they did to the people of Israel. And notice in verse 13, we read of one such transgression. It says there that they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. It's not a figure of speech. This was not a metaphor. This was a literal attack the most vulnerable, women who were pregnant. This was a practice that was often done during war, especially in those days. It was done in order to prevent an enemy from being able to reconstitute an army to attack them in the near future. But what made this a worse atrocity, if a thing, such a thing were possible, was why did they do it? Look at the text. What does it say? They ripped open pregnant women to enlarge their borders. Because they wanted more land. That's why they committed this barbarous act. So they took their swords and they brutally tore infants right out of their mothers. Yeah, one shudders to think how, how unimaginable that would have been. So God says he will bring a battle to Ammon. And what's interesting here, notice he said in verse 14, in the, all the other oracles he said, I will send a fire. This one says, I will kindle fire. Different word. And I think he says that on purpose. It's almost as if God is saying, this is personal. I will be personally involved in your judgment. He's saying, this sin is so wicked. I myself am lighting the match and I myself am coming to light the fire of judgment upon you. Serious. Very serious. Then in Amos chapter 2, verse 1, following Ammon is Moab. Again, The brother, uh, also descended from Lot. Moab's transgression seems a little bit like not as serious. It says there they burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, this event could have taken place about a hundred years prior when Moab had defeated an army which included, or Moab was defeated by an army which included Edom and so uh, the king of Moab looking for a reprisal uh, must have uh, found the, the grave of the king of Edom and taken it out the bones and, and then crushed them, burned them to ash. And then it says to Lyme, we'll talk about that in a minute. But numerous ancient Near Eastern documents and gravestones talk about that. You were not to disturb the grave of that person. In fact, uh, one was found which described numerous curses that would come upon anybody who had uh, disrupted or uh, disturbed the contents of the grave of the person that was there. So it was an act of desecration, it was an act of disrespect and dishonor, burning the bones to ashes or crushing them was even a greater sign of disrespect. In fact, in 1415, the Council of Constance did this to a certain man. Ed, who was that guy? I don't that. You don't remember? John Wycliffe's bones. Remember what they did? Yeah, exactly. As a means to show their anger and disgust, they had declared John Wycliffe the man who was involved in us having an English translation of the Scriptures. They called him a heretic. And the only thing they could think of doing was digging his bones back up and desecrating them by crushing them, and as Ed said throwing them in the river. Here they did such a similar thing to the king of Edom. The Moabites held King of Edom and the Edomites in such contempt that they took his bones and burned them to ash. But not only that, it says that they, they burned them to lime. and lime was often used as like a form of plaster in order to put upon the construction upon buildings and walls. And so in a sense, they were saying the Edomite. The worth of an Edomite is the same as as the lime we use to paint our walls. And so God declares judgment upon the Moabites for their desecrating of a human being. Which again, that might seem like a strong response to what appears to be a relatively minor offense, especially to the other things that we've read about here in chapter 1. But in a minute we'll talk about why he does that. Okay, so kind of looking at these, let's step back a minute. How would you say these oracles are connected? What is the link between them? Yes, they they all reveal God's judgment, but for what? Certain transgressions. But how are the transgressions of desecrating a person's grave, to betrayal, to slavery, to torture, to the unconscionable murder of pregnant women, how are these all related? We would call these crimes against humanity, wouldn't we? And God particularly responds to these atrocities because ultimately they are a violation of a principle that God communicated to Noah right after the flood. You remember the flood, right? Everyone on earth was destroyed except Noah's family. And why did God do that? Why did God bring that judgment? It was sin ultimately, that's right. Remember he said the thoughts of them were evil continually, but well, we read in Genesis 6.11 that it says the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence. And so after the flood and after Noah gets out of the ark and he's on dry land and he builds an altar to sacrifice to the Lord, among the first words that God speaks to Noah are these. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's, man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God... He made man. That is the basis for God's judgment that he declares in Amos 1. Because you see, they had violated the sanctity of life. They had despised the dignity of human beings. A a dignity which comes about because though we are sin-cursed, we are still made in God's image. We're made in God's image. The second greatest commandment to love others comes on the heels of... What's the first commandment again? The greatest commandment is to love God. The second is to love our neighbors as ourself, right? That's because love for God is most tangibly expressed by caring for those made in His image. Love for God is most tangibly expressed by caring for those who are created in His image. Right, I I know that you love me when you show care for my family. I know that you care about me when you show concern for my children. And even in a greater sense, those made in the image of God, those who, again, those sin has marred and blurred that image to some extent, They are still, we are still made in his image. So to desecrate another human being with violence or indignity or hatred or murder or abuse, to desecrate anybody in that way is to desecrate the image of God. We see here in Amos that how people are treated matters to God. How people are treated matters to him. And God's justice demands that that His people, that people, His image bearers, those whom He created, those whom He sustains and cares for, God's justice demands that they be treated rightly. That's why these acts, ranging from burning a man's bones all the way to murdering pregnant women and their babies, all of those got God's attention because they were all attacks on His image. They were all attacks on His own creation. And the atrocities that we've read here in Amos 1, did they stop in Amos' day? Did they end at that time? No, they didn't. Right, Our generation and the past couple of generations, we've seen and heard some of the greatest atrocities ever committed. Haven't we? I mean, today we can but look to the Middle East and the very region in Iran, which is modern-day Syria, to see the same kinds of things taking place. I saw a video of a man who was brutally decapitated by a group of Syrian rebels because he would not join their group. And then right after that, they executed two women who would not provide sexual services to the soldiers. And then they took these bodies and carelessly dumped them into a ditch and then celebrated their great triumph. Many of you have probably seen the pictures or videos of the children Who've suffered or died from exposure to sarin gas. And there are many of our own dear brothers and sisters in Christ who've been tortured and killed in Syria and other places by Muslim extremists. Our own brothers and sisters. And I see these things and I read about these things, and it makes me angry. To see these wicked acts. Especially on our brothers and sisters in Christ. It makes my heart cry out for justice. Does not yours? Will there be any consequences for these terrible acts that have been committed, these atrocities, and so, so many others that have happened all through history? You know, it's in that moment when I, I see these things and I just struggles with them. Amos gives me comfort. He gives me comfort because In Amos, God's saying, I I see, I'm watching. I will respond. I know what's happening. And notice God repeats every time. He says, I will not revoke my decision. I will not deviate from my judgment. I'm determined to carry out my justice. And you know what? Even if the desecration of a corpse got God's attention... That tells me that nothing, nothing will escape his justice. Amos, says that, or Amos is saying God is telling us that all are accountable, that everyone will in the end answer for their crimes, especially brutal crimes against humanity. So Amos does give me comfort in that, but he also gives me concern. For just as God was watching the nations in Amos' day, so too he is watching us. And by us, I mean capital U, capital S. He's watching our nation. He's watching America. And you know, wasn't it our nation that was like Edom? Did we not purchase human beings who had been kidnapped from their homes and sold as slaves? President Lincoln shared this concern before the Civil War ended. In fact, he said in his second inaugural address, these words, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills, that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln feared judgment upon this land. And he saw the Civil War as perhaps part of that judgment. You know, I'm also concerned as I read about Ammon ripping open pregnant women and I think about the nearly 60 million infants that have been ripped apart inside their mother's wombs in this country. 60 million babies murdered on American soil in the last 40 years. What would Amos say to America? What would God's message be about our crimes against humanity? Brothers and sisters, as unfashionable or un-PC as it may be today, we must warn like the prophets did for things are not fine here. You know, the Israelites were saying that. We're going to see as we go through the book. Everything was great. Everything was, you know, economy was doing well. There was security. Things were looking up. But things aren't fine. Judgment is coming, and we must warn everyone. And I appreciated, Aldo, what he said earlier. We come not with a self-righteous attitude, but in humility. Like Jeremiah the prophet, as he brought his message of judgment and warning, he was weeping. He was pleading with the people to believe, to understand, to listen, to recognize that judgment was coming. And so as we remember the Reformation this month and celebrate that and appreciate that, we should be all the more reminded of the need for Reformation in our land. We need to be reformed now, today, here. And as Ed pointed out several weeks ago, Reformation begins with repentance. And that's why we warn of judgment so that people would repent. We warn of judgment so that people would fear the consequences of their sin. We have words in books like Amos to remind us God is watching. He will respond and he will respond upon our country. And so we warn of judgment so that people may seek forgiveness. We warn of judgment so that people may turn to the Savior. Not to condemn. It's not a message of condemnation. It's one of reconciliation. That's how Paul saw it. He begged people to be reconciled to God. And that's why he warned of judgment. That God will forgive. He forgave Nineveh, didn't he? Didn't we just look at that? Entire city of pagan idolaters who were violent said there, in fact, that their violence had risen up before God and he was going to respond. But they repented and God forgave them. And so too he will forgive any who genuinely repent from their sin, confess their sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive them and commit to follow him the rest of their days. Jesus will forgive. And so we must preach that message. All of us. We are all Amos, brothers and sisters. We all have a message to declare And not only must we preach, we must also pray. pray for souls. And I admit, I don't pray enough for souls. I I don't pray enough for our nation. I I don't pray enough for our city, for God to do a work here. How about you? I would hope that these words from Amos would stir our hearts to action, that, that we would be burdened, that we'd be burdened for our nation, for our state, I mean, our state is it's very progressive, but we're going the wrong direction. Pray for our city. Be burdened for it. Be burdened so that we would proclaim the gospel. Be burdened so that we would pray. Be burdened so that we would take action and warn others. Don't get caught up so much in everyday life that you forget that what matters in eternity, that we forget that our nation's in danger really is. really is. Let's pray for our nation now. Lord, it is a somber reminder from Amos, Lord, that you are watching and that you will judge not only individuals but entire nations, Lord, who have committed crimes against humanity, who have desecrated those made in your image. Lord, we are comforted that you are a God of justice. That you will make all wrongs right in your way, in your plan. But Lord, I am concerned. I am burdened for our country. Lord, I'm grateful for how you've allowed us to, through this nation, worship you freely. But Lord, we have much blood on our hands. Lord, I pray, God, you would stir us to... Proclaim your message, Lord, of of judgment, but also one of hope, hope for any who would turn to you in faith. Pray, God, that we would lift up the name of your Son, that we would lift up the cross on high so that all may see that there is a means of forgiveness to be right with you and not only to escape judgment, but to be adopted as your sons and daughters, to have fellowship with you. Lord, use us in this community, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.